0: Alrighty, head on over to first Thessalonians chapter 5. You guys think you can just sneak in here anytime you want to, Mike and Abby Mike and Abby. Good to see you guys. Always good to see Mike and Abby. welcome guys. good to have you. All right, First Thessalonians chapter 5. and if you're just joining us uh you're coming in on the tail end of a conversation and when we do that in real life sometimes it's hard to get our bearings so uh the rest of the class that has been paying attention taking copious notes reading 1st Thessalonians every day uh, is going to help us to remember uh what this book is about okay so 1st Thessalonians is a book written by Paul to the Thessalonians, okay. You got the kindergarten questions down. That's good. Um, And when was this book written? Do you remember about when? Yeah, 51 A.D., early 50s, which makes it one of the earliest, if not the earliest, New Testament book written. Uh, And and, uh, again, if you're new to Christianity and you're still kind of getting oriented on your Bible and where things are, you know, the New Testament starts in Matthew, goes to Revelation, but those books aren't necessarily in chronological order and they're not necessarily written in they're not they don't appear in the same order in which the books were written historically so sometimes that's a little bit confusing so first Thess, even though it's in the middle of the new testament was actually one of the earliest books written and uh, so what's going on the church is brand new Uh, there is no full new testament and so paul is writing to these brand new christians in thessalonica which is where Greece, okay, Greece, very good, and remember uh, it was not only an important port city, but it that that particular city was on a very significant highway, highway okay, so you 've got lots of commerce right you 've got people coming and going. Uh, uh, foot traffic, and then you've also got ships coming and going from the port, so a very important city, and God in his kindness planted a church right there and said, this church is going to be my light, my gospel influence to all those folks coming and going through Thessalonica. Okay, so what are some of the themes that that uh, you've seen in the book of First Thessalonians that Paul is talking about with them? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, believers, the believers are being faithful, right? And he, he writes to them to, to stay at it, stick with it, excel still more, right? Excel still more. I heard that somewhere. And that's our theme for the year. That's our church's theme for the year. This is where we get it from is the book of First Thessalonians. This is a church that's doing really well. And, and Paul says over and over and over, you know what? You're doing a great job. Keep it up. You're doing a great job. Get even better. And, uh, and that's where we get our theme there. Um, do you remember why he's writing this letter? He just... Inquiring, just bored. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, I remember Paul got got uh, sent out of the city during persecution. He had to leave the city. He founded the church. He was there for a while. And then the uprising that happened in the city, the persecution that happened, he has to leave the city. So he leaves, and, uh, and all the time he's wondering, how are they doing? How are they doing? Because it's not just persecution of Paul and the Apostles it's persecution of the church by association and uh, so and of course he doesn't just you know check Facebook he doesn't just whip out his phone send a quick text message hey how's it going guys we're not in that era so this this is the era of if you want to know how somebody is doing what do you have to do you have to write him a letter or send a friend and Paul did both who did he send to to Thessalonica to check on him Timothy, right? Timothy brought back what kind of message? A good report, right? And so in response to that good report that the Thessalonians were being faithful, that they're loving each other, that they're standing firm in their faith, Paul picks up his pen and writes, First Thessalonians, all right. <laughs> you don't leave me hanging like that. I was worried. Um, okay, so that, that's, that's our letter in a nutshell, okay? And so we're talking about a church that's doing well, uh, Paul has run the gamut in terms of topics. He's talked about their love for one another, their faithfulness to the Lord. He's talked about uh, his own example in terms of uh, not uh, leaning on them, but, you know, coming in and working and trying to be a good example for them. And then you, you get the sense that this is a brand new church, brand new Christians, and, um, you know, you know something happened. You know, the, the, for the very first time, you have a, a Christian population and grandma dies. And we're going, okay, so grandma who trusted Christ and knew the gospel dies, what happens to grandma? And the Thessalonians start asking the question, what happens to believers who die? Where are they? And and when will we see them again? And uh, it, it, there was apparently a rumor going around that, um, you know, th- there, there was some sort of, negative response to that, that they weren't going to see them or there was uncertainty about the timing of that. And so Paul in chapter 4 writes in verse 13, so we'll pick it up now in chapter 4, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So that, that sets up the, really the rest of the book. Something had happened to where Thess- there, there were Thessalonian believers that were grieving thinking that loved ones who had died in Christ that they would never see them again or or that that they didn't know what happened to them. So Paul's going to write in order to encourage them and help. And this is important. We talked about this last time. When we talk about eschatology, I mean, you want to start a fight at Thanksgiving dinner. Just bring up eschatology or or bring up college football or politics. All three of those will, will do it for sure. And, um, some of you are, are grieving and mourning over your college team that lost yesterday. I know, I know. Anyway, um, but so, so this this is a source of contention. And Paul reminds us here the point of eschatology, in other words, the, the point of studying about the end times, the last things, uh, is, is not so we can debate and not so we can you know, make our own church and do something like that. The point is to encourage one another in hope that uh, when loved ones die, that's not the end. That they will be with the Lord forever, and for the rest of us, we will join them one day if we're in the Lord as well. So we want to keep that in mind. These are secondary issues. These are not primary theological issues. Uh, Christians shouldn't be dividing fellowship, and, and not, I'm not going to be your friend kind of thing, uh, because one Christian has a different eschatological system than another. These are secondary doctrines. They're important. Uh, but they're not the most important thing. This is not like the Trinity. This is not like salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. And so we want to have a, a humility and a, um, a right perspective on all this. So chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, don't, I want you to be uninformed, right? So I'm going to inform you. And then he describes th- this, this event that we know as the rapture. And the rapture is a, well, let me ask you, what's the rapture? Yeah, Christians taken out of the world, okay? And we see that in chapter 4, verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, meaning Christians that have died, will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. When we talked about that, that... um, you know, people are comprised of an outer man and an inner man, right? A body and a soul. And when a Christian dies, their soul and their body separate. Where does their soul go immediately? To be with the Lord, right? What happens to their body? It goes in the ground and it starts decaying, right? And then when Jesus returns in this event, what's going to happen is those who died in Christ will be resurrected, and then those who might be alive on that day, will be resurrected to meet the Lord in their air, the soul and uh, body of those who had died reunited. And uh, remember we talk about that point that our bodies will be changed and glorified, meaning they'll be um, perfectly reflecting of the Lord Jesus in that. And uh, thus, as it says, there will always be with the Lord. And in verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope, because we know those who have died in Christ are with him now, And one day we'll be raised and we will join them. Okay, so that's kind of the the takeaway. Now that gets into this whole topic called eschatology, which is the doctrine of the last things or the end times. So we're going to continue that today into chapter five. But before we do that, let's just review a little bit. And uh, you're going to review here. So talk about some terms, okay? So you talked about the rapture. What is the tribulation? talked about that last week, the tribulation Okay. so it's a period of time lasting seven years and, and what does everybody agree on in terms of the tribulation? It's not fun, <laughs> it's not fun Carl, write that down. It's not fun. <laughs> Hence the term. Tribulation. All right. Welcome. Welcome to spiritual kindergarten. Very good. Um, Yes, it's not good. It's not fun. It's probably a period of about seven years. Uh, It's called the tribulation. It's called the great tribulation uh, in the book of um, Revelation or in Matthew 24 and again in the book of Revelation. So we'll talk about that again today. So that's the tribulation. That's a time of, uh, of judgment. It's a time of war. It's the time of the Antichrist. Uh, it's a time of great godlessness. Um, so, yes, it's not fun, and uh, it, it's not a time that you want to be on the Remember, this is the time where Jesus says, um, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're pregnant in those days, that's not good, right? Uh, if you're uh, out in the field on that, that's not good, right? This is going to be a time of, of horrible persecution and affliction. Okay, what about the millennium? The Millennium. Not, not the Millennium Falcon, kids. The Millennium. Uh, what is that? It's a, yes, it's a thousand-year reign of Christ where Christ rules his kingdom on the earth. Some of our friends see that as a spiritual kingdom. We understand it as a, a literal kingdom, but that's what the Millennium refers to, is a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth where he fulfills uh, the covenants of the Old Testament, particularly the Davidic covenant, uh, that Christ will rule his redeemed people uh, for a thousand years. Okay? And, and remember, as a footnote, um, you know, your friends might be Ah and were Pre Mill, and there's all these different systems. And, and you say, well, how, how, do, how does R.C. Sproul and John Piper and John MacArthur all disagree on this? I mean, that, those are three really smart guys that we would all look to as. You know, exemplary. We all love their books and their teaching. And three guys like that can't agree on eschatology. You know, why is that? And remember, the reason that those three men don't agree, and this is this is what's really important, I think, for our purposes, it really has to do with how we interpret Scripture, and and our understanding of how to interpret the Bible is to try to take it in its normal, plain, ordinary sense. Unless there's something in the text that's so compelling, we can't take it like that. We take it in a more, you know, symbolic way. And so if you, if you apply a consistent hermeneutic or a, uh, a consistent way of interpreting the Bible, taking it in its normal, plain, ordinary sense, you arrive at premillennial, pre-tribulational, literal kingdom, things like that. Okay. But that's that explains a part of the differences here. What, what, let's see what's other term we talked about millennium, talked about tribulation, talked about rapture. Uh, what's the ooh? What's the day of the Lord? We forgot that one. What's the day of the Lord? Hmm. That one's a little bit fuzzier, isn't it? That's what's that? Okay, it is related to the second coming where Christ actually comes to the earth remember uh, not not stealing Terry's thunder but remember he's going to get to chapter 14 where we talk about Christ coming to the earth splits them out of olives in half it's awesome yeah. The, the reign, correct yeah yeah so so the day of the Lord has something to do with the final destruction that's true has to do with judgment? And, and the reason this isn 't as, as clear to you as probably some of the other terms is that the day of the lord is is a pretty diverse term in the bible sometimes it 's just used broadly to speak of judgment of God uh, over his enemies but then it, remember it has that more technical term that narrower use where it talks about a time of judgment and um, and tribulation that culminates in the return of Christ and final judgment so so the day of the Lord you know, your day of the lord it 's not it 's not Day like one day, it's day like, it's more of a time. Uh, and we'll talk about that more today. Okay, and then finally, the new heavens and the new earth. You guys good with that? New heavens and new earth. Peter talks about it. Revelation talks about it. Good. Give me, give me thumbs up. Give me something, man. I mean, it's just, you go, you know, we don't know, Pastor Keith. That... Yeah, it's the remaking of the earth. Yeah, the new heavens and the new earth, right? We read about that in the book of Revelation. Um, you know the uh, as beautiful as this world is, and and as wonderful as this world is, and in its uh, all the neat things that it will end in fire and in judgment, and then God will rebuild a new heavens and a new earth, like this one in in beauty and wonder, but without sin or suffering, and that's that's the destiny that we have. So so when you think of heaven, don't think of harps and halos, think of a beautiful. Planet just like this, but even more beautiful, without all the bad and with multiplied good. And most importantly, uh, we are redeemed uh, and are with our Savior forever. Okay, so that's that's coming. All right, so th- those are some terms here, so I'll throw these up here that the day of the Lord, used broadly, used in a technical, technical sense to refer to a future judgment of the nations, tribulation. Intense suffering and trouble, particularly for the nation of Israel. The rapture, Christ's initial return to resurrect and remove believers from the earth, meeting him in the air. Millennial kingdom, future time where Christ will rule on the earth for a thousand years following his second coming and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. and The new heavens and new earth, a future, eternal creation, free of sin and suffering and believers reside with the Trinity forever. You guys did pretty good. Good job. Okay, so look with me now at chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epochs, epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Isn't it interesting? Um, Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, I'm going to tell you this so that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. Right? I'm telling you this so you'll be encouraged, so that you'll have hope, right? And then in the middle of the section, chapter 4, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Then at the end of the section, chapter 5, verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Do you see eschatology is not about charts and graphs, even though those are great. It's about encouraging one another in the things of the lord and paul he 's like i 'm going to tell you this at the beginning i 'm going to remind you mid, and then i 'm going to tell you at the end why we 're doing this, why we 're talking about this so let let 's keep that in mind so that as we respond to these things that we 're learning, we remember the purpose and um, and use that purpose wisely okay now notice chapter five verse one now as to the times Paul starts off uh, there 's our picture by the way we 'll come back to that picture here in just a minute. rapture. Tribulation period, second coming, millennial kingdom, and we're over here somewhere. Maybe we're right here. Or maybe we're over here. Who knows? Okay. So, the day of the Lord. The, the little phrase there now as, chapter 5, verse 1, signifies a transition to a new but related topic. And this is important um, uh, to, to recognize uh, textually there's a bit of a transition here, right? So that helps us to know is a new topic, but it's related to what he was just talking about. And he says, I want to talk to you about the timing and the nature of this thing called the Day of the Lord. And again, Day of the Lord, as we saw, is a loaded term. Uh, for any of these Thessalonian Christians that knew something of their Old Testament, they would know that this, this Day of the Lord is something that's been talked about uh, for hundreds of years. Uh, the prophets particularly in the Old Testament, foresaw this day of the Lord. Jesus talked about the day of the Lord. And now um, Paul is going to write to the Thessalonians about it. Okay, so let's talk about the nature and the timing of this day of the Lord. Notice, first of all, there's a contrast. They, uh, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, brethren, and then he talks about they. And and it's important to see that the they, (laughs) those other guys, are unbelievers. Okay, so when it says there, uh, verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. So Paul's saying they, unbelievers, are going to be saying peace and safety and then destruction will come upon them. We're, we're talking about unbelievers in contrast to brothers will think that they are safe. J- can we just picture what this is going to be like? Um, th- this is part of the, the motivational aspect of what Paul intends for this passage to bring to us um unbelievers are thinking peace and safety they're in the stands of a college football game rooting on their team their team's winning they're having a great time they can't imagine you know they're their their teams going to the rose bowl or the Cotton Bowl or what, you know, whatever, right? they are bowl games coming and, and peace and safety, right? People are enjoying a college football game. They're excited. Um, peace and safety, right? There's a, there's a couple. They're thinking about their retirement and they're looking at their, their finances and they're thinking, man, we're going to enjoy this great retirement. We've got lots of years ahead of us, plenty of money in the bank. We're going to travel the world. We're going to go on cruises and camping and seeing grandkids. And they're thinking peace and safety. Peace and safety, right? Uh, there are other families that are thinking, man, you know, I've, I just landed this great job. I just got married to this great girl or this great guy. And they're thinking, life can't get any better than this, right? Peace and safety, peace and safety. And can you imagine in all of those scenarios and millions of other scenarios where people on the planet are thinking, man, things are great. It can't get any better than this. And Jesus returns. And all of a sudden, all the vacations, all the money, all the health, all the family, all the fun times, all the hobbies, all the stuff, all the sports, doesn't matter at all. And it all goes away. That day of the Lord comes. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, while the world is saying everything's great, all of a sudden this day of the Lord is going to come upon them. It's going to come upon them like a thief in the night. How many of you ever been robbed? Your house, your work, personally, been robbed before? Not very fun, I hear. Okay, I'm, those of you that had your hand up, just help me with this because I've never been robbed, but uh, actually I have been robbed, but. You know, they think about it, but did you, is, is this how it works? You, know, you get up in the morning and you think, you know what? Today's a good day to be robbed. You know, I'm going to go to work and uh, and I'll just sit there and, and uh, the thief's supposed to show up at 1.34 and is that how it works? What, what is it about theft as it relates to our passage here? You feel violated, you feel violated? for sure, yeah. It's unsuspected. You don't because if you knew you were going to get robbed, what would you do? You'd prepare, right? You'd get a bigger gun or whatever. Right. It's Texas. That's what we do, um, right? The whole point of being robbed is that you don't know what's going to happen. You're walking to you know Sundance, Sundance Square, or, you know, you're sitting in your house, and all of a sudden. Thieves break in. A, a, a robber comes up. You know, you're walking around with your family, grabs your purse. You're not expecting that. It comes upon you suddenly, and that—that's the point. It's peace and safety. Everything's great. And all of a sudden, when you're not suspecting it, this day of the Lord hits. Uh, he uses a second analogy here. One that I don't know what that's like, but many of you know what's like. The sudden, uh, the sudden occurrence. Of labor pains, okay. A lot of you moms have know what that's like, right? And uh, and we're not talking about you know labor like 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 labor like oh like we gotta go to the hospital, honey, labor, right? And it just comes upon you, and it's painful. And Paul says, <laughs> someone says, Amen. Yeah, um, right. Paul says that's what this day of the Lord is going to be like. It will be sudden like a thief in the night. It will be sudden and painful the way labor pains come upon a woman. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. And notice the text. Look at verse 3. And they will not escape. Think someone, someone tries to rob you, you might have a chance of running away. You might be able to fight back. Not the day of the Lord. There's no fighting back. There's no escape. So they, unbelievers, will think that they were safe and then it will come like a thief in the night and labor pains. And sudden destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. Um, and it's too late at this point, isn't it? It's too late because it started. The day of the Lord has started and I just I was studying this this week thinking about this and I'm just thinking think of all the and I don't I don't mean this to be like like you know Keith went Eeyore on you today but um, think of all the people in the world that are caught up in all sort of frivolous things think of all the people caught up in the world with good things right you know family and relationships and those can be good right blessings but they're unprepared for this day. And like Jesus told Martha, you've neglected the most important thing, haven't you? And on this day, when everybody's saying peace and safety, none of those other things will matter. I just, you know, Paul's going to say it here, but I, I just... Doesn't that reorient how you think about life and your priorities and what we ought to be doing as a church, as individuals. You know, nothing wrong with rooting for college football and loving family and, you know, working hard. I mean, we need to do those things. But but this this is the day we're called to prepare people for. And there's just way too many people that are going to be saying, peace and safety... And they have no idea that, that the thief of the day of the Lord is coming upon them. And sudden destruction. And no way of escape at that point. So yeah, Carl.
1: Mm-hmm. Talking about that when we pray for, you know,
0: I want the rapture to happen tomorrow, or yeah. today, or again, yeah. it's a, you know, even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, yeah. what we're praying for
1: is also praying for this judgment to come upon mm-hmm. those six billion people.
0: That's right. Yeah, I think what, what Peter says, remember, remember Peter writes to his audience and they got some skeptics saying, oh, you know, you Christians, you're saying any day now, and we've been waiting, you know, all this time. And it was like, what, 40 years at that time or something like that. And, um, and remember what Peter says? He says, the Lord is not, the Lord is not slow as some count slowness, right? But, but why is the Lord delaying? Do you remember? because he desires all to be saved right come to repentance in that way so yeah that's um you know you pray come lord jesus i'm I'm tired of living in the brokenness of the world but then you also pray but i want to see as many people come to faith before then as possible and so you've got this this tension in your heart but that that's a good tension it's a good tension thanks for mentioning that So sudden destruction come upon them, but believers will not be overtaken by this day since they are sons of light who are not destined for the day of wrath. Look at this. This is interesting in light of what he just said about believers being removed back in chapter 4. So look at this. He says, but brethren, this is chapter 5 verse 4, but you brethren are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you. And then he says in verse nine, "For God is not destined us for wrath but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and we have to be careful because th- that term wrath we have to interpret it in its context here um, i mean there, there are lots of you know displays of god 's wrath from you know final judgment to you know some of the affliction we see today Romans talks about god 's wrath is already here in that sense, but contextually what what I think what Paul intends here, God is not destined us for wrath. What he's saying is, God's not destined you for this day. If you're in Christ, you're with Him. You're safe. And this is not a day that's going to overtake you, a day that you're going to live through uh, because God has not destined you for that but instead has rescued you from it for the obtaining of salvation uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Um, okay, so, so we don't have to fear uh, going through this day of the Lord, this day of wrath. Uh, instead, believers are destined, it says they're for salvation, and will live together with Him. Because of the rapture, believers will not experience this day. So th- that's the way I understand you put these two things together. Again, other friends are going to put them together differently. But I think contextually that's what makes the most sense, that this day of wrath, this, this day of the Lord, believers will not experience because they've already been removed uh, from the earth in the rapture. Now, notice this doesn't, this passage doesn't give any timing. It doesn't say Christ removes the church and then the day of the Lord happens if there's a time period there. Paul doesn't give explicit chronology, but only that the removal of the church, the removal of believers precedes this day of the Lord in some way. Okay, does that make sense? And remember chapter 5, verse 10, we will always be with the Lord, right? Verse 10, for, for, uh, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That that echoes the same thing that chapter 4 verse 17 says, thus we shall always be with the Lord. So I think Paul is tying those two things together there, saying we will not experience this day of the Lord, this day of wrath, because we've been removed in the rapture and thus we'll be with the Lord in that day. Now, here's the takeaway, okay? Even if your eschatology is a little bit different, here's the thing we can all agree on, okay? Look at this. In light of these sobering realities, what are we supposed to do with this? Look what he says. He says it multiple ways, multiple times. He says, verse 5, For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep, but let us be alert and sober. What do you think he means by that? Don't yeah, don't be unaware. Right, that's where it started. Right, he says, you know, don't be ignorant. So be aware. What else? Yeah, yeah. Have your have your your spiritual eyeglasses on. You you know what God's doing. Be mindful of that. Be faithful. Be faithful. He uses a word. Two times here, and and it's a little bit of a play on words because he talks about, you know, the the world, you know, unbelievers are of the darkness, we're of the light, and, you know, the darkness at night, you know, people get drunk at night, so he plays off of that and says, but you're of the light, so he says, be sober, be sober sober and i don't think he, he's saying you know don't get drunk i mean certainly don't do that but but it, this is the way the bible often uses this term in in in, re, in regard to spiritual health be sober means be self-controlled be be aware be alert be paying attention keep your head in the game you know i mean, remember my dad teaching us baseball you know way way back when i was a little kid right keep your head in the game son you know don't be looking at the airplane flying over i did that sometimes right instead of watching what's going on um Keep your head in the game. Be sober. Be alert. Pay attention. And in light of what he just said is what's going to happen, what are some ways we probably need to be alert and paying attention and being sober? What are some applications of that in light of what he just said about this day of the Lord? Yes? Yeah, Yeah. certainly stay in God's Word. Yeah. fellowship with other believers. We got we got to keep the team strong. Yep, Grant. Uh, God's word. Okay, being mindful of current events, thinking about what God's word says. Investing in eternal things. In eternal things. Yeah. Now, again, and those are all good. I I'm, I'm reading this going if if 6 billion people apparently are saying peace and safety um we got a job to do, don't we? May, is is this is this a good time to pull the car over and just say, um, do our priorities in life align with the soberness and alertness in light of these future things that are coming? You know. Um, And that's not saying, you know, we shouldn't work and family isn't important and we shouldn't be responsible economically. It's not saying, you know, we go live in a commune somewhere. What it's saying is, are we investing in spiritual things? Are we thinking about our neighbors that are saying, peace and safety? And we know this day is coming on them. I mean, if if you knew that your neighbor was going to be robbed and they're saying peace and safety, would you tell them about it? Or would you just let it happen? I mean that, that's 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 the soberness, that's the alertness I think that Paul is saying are you saying this should change our priorities, this should change what we invest in and what we do. This should this should remind us that loving neighbor means that we warn them. Yeah. Rusty? Mm hmm. Are we gonna be a good soldier? Right? For Kathy? For yeah. yeah, for Christ, that's right. Yeah, yeah. This is not, uh, you know, the Christian life is a vacation or a holiday. This is a Christian life is war, and it's serious, and we have a job to do, and um, these are serious things. Yeah. So, so be sober, be alert, be self-controlled. Think about what's going on. Keep your head in the game. Um, don't get caught up. And we do that. We all do this. I do this. You do this. We just get caught up in stuff that doesn't matter. I'm really glad the Cowboys won Thursday. I am. But it doesn't matter. This stuff matters. So Paul says, in light of these realities, the Thessalonian believers should strive to be alert, self-controlled, remembering their faith and love and the hope of their salvation. So, So there's a contrast. Someone, yeah, Carl. Yeah. yeah that's right that that's always that's always a possibility isn't it so yeah so, so maybe um so maybe we're the ones that need to say are, are we the ones saying peace and safety right yeah that's true yeah and, and you know there's a contrast here there's this destruction that's coming it's going to come upon them like a thief we remember our faith and our love the hope of their salvation so that we can continue to encourage and build one another up so it, it is it's like this contrast between If we're in Christ, we know that we're safe from this. We're not going to experience this. It's always good to ask, am I, am I in, right? Is that, is, is it true that I will be safe as a believer in all this? But likewise, to be thankful for that salvation insofar as we are in Christ. um, and to comfort one another. That's 10, right? Who, so we will live together with him. Verse 11. So therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So we're saying, church, be encouraged. But we're also saying, church, we have a mission, and uh, so let's be sober and alert and get out there and be faithful to do that. Okay. Now, with that in mind, let, let's look at the the chart we had, and I added a couple of things here, and we have this really cool new color printer. I didn't even tell it to print in color; it just did it. So you have a little bit of color here. So you know, the old chart is you know the the black and white. So what we're seeing is as we start to add elements to what this looks like, this day of the Lord is really a reference to this whole time period here. Okay? Um, And it parallels some of these other things, at least as far as I put these things together. Again, different people are going to put these things together differently, but what makes sense to me, trying to just let the Bible speak for itself and put things together in a way that seems logical and rational that this day of the Lord is paralleling the tribulation period. And remember, the day of the Lord, it, it, it can refer specifically more to the latter half. But in light of what we've seen, it really refers to this whole time period in a general way. In Revelation 6 to 9, we, we read about the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Those are all references to this tribulation period. It, it parallels, if you read that, it parallels what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 the Great Tribulation, the Tribulation. Some people say, you know, this is the Tribulation. The last three and a half years is the Great Tribulation. Yeah, okay, we can do that. Um, and then Daniel's 70th week. And I don't I don't know how we get into Daniel and, you know, end before three o'clock. So uh, we're not going to jump into that. Come to our home group next time. We'd love to have you. We're talking about... Actually, we're talking about Daniel 9, Daniel's 70th week next... Well, two weeks from today, actually. Um, so you're all welcome. But... Um, Anyway, so what happens in Daniel is Daniel sets up this chronology of events that's going to happen, including when the Messiah is cut off, when the Messiah comes, when the temple's rebuilt. And uh, he talks about these 70 weeks of years. So if you take 70 weeks, but each day represents a year, you end up with 490 years, right? Well, what happens is. If you read Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, 69 of those weeks have happened, including the destruction of uh, the temple in 70 A.D., leaving one final week, one final seven-year period. Um, And that is what we think is going to happen in this tribulation period, this day of the Lord, is equivalent to that final week of Daniel's prophecy. So when you hear the term Daniel's 70th week, that's where that comes from okay now i know you might have questions so what are your questions okay well, let's close in prayer that's good that's easy yes yeah so so what you're think you're thinking about is the great white throne judgment which happens here yeah. yeah yeah based on how revelation puts the chronology the tribulation comes first then the return of christ then the millennial kingdom then what we call the great white throne or final judgment. Yeah. yeah. Can, can I show you something interesting? yeah, yes. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. Yeah. How would you address people who say regarding Matthew twenty four that Jesus is saying some of you yeah. will not die before you see these things. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then he you know he says uh, in another place, you know, this generation will not pass away. Yeah, we we understand those um, talking about you know, the generation, the era, meaning this era of people. Um, I mean, certainly, um, well, it gets a little bit tricky. So, so two things. One is, I think ultimately he's saying this is for that next generation. He's talking mainly to Jewish believers. And of course, Jewish believers are the ones that are going to come out mainly of the tribulation period. So that, that I think explains in part why Jesus says what he does to those, uh, so those Jewish followers of his. But remember, the disciples ask him a couple of different questions. They ask him, you know, they remember they're walking, they see the temple, and Jesus says, hey, by the way, you know this whole thing's going to get torn down? And they're like, really? When's that going to happen? And, and then they say, well, and when is the promise of your return? So G- Jesus has actually asked two, to, three different questions. One is about the destruction of the temple. One is about his return. And in Jesus' answer, he talks about the destruction of the temple, which some of the disciples are actually going to witness in 70 AD. But they're not going to see the second coming. That's yet in the future. So part of, part of his statement about some of you will see this is a reference to those near-term events, not so much the far-term events. That's a great question. And that's part of the, part of the mystery of, of Matthew 24. Everybody that has a different view struggles with Matthew 24 because there are things that just don't quite line up. But, that's, that's my best take at it. Yeah. Maybe we need to do Matthew 24 sometime. Mm-hmm. Yes, listen. Does the day of the Lord also refer to when Christ comes back and he has the blood of the bartered saints on the moon? The that comes so yeah, so that, 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 that's getting to this this final piece right here. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. In, yeah, Grant. I was just going to say, I've got a question about the millennial kingdom. Yeah. yeah we got see we got we have to do more weeks on this because cuz cuz the answer is the answer is sort of um uh yeah we just we just we need to do like a whole series on this because yes it's redeemed israel and yes jesus is ruling but yes sin and suffering are not finally put away that happens at the end of the millennium so yeah it's a qualified yes a yes ma'am As far as we know, what yes. the hundred and forty four witnesses and the two witnesses come and play there? You guys really just want to do eschatology class, don't you? <laughs> yeah, so the hundred and forty-four thousand, which which is you know, from the twelve tribes, those are believers that come out of the tribulation period, Jewish believers. Yeah. Yeah. Carl? I was just gonna
1: say perhaps an answer to the the Lord questions mm-hmm. is one way to look at that is it's the intervention of God into
0: history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. The general definition is a time where God intervenes, particularly in judgment. But yeah, that's right. Real quick, too, and and, and sometimes when I talk to my friends that have different views, um, one of the, one of the pushbacks is, you know, isn't what you guys believe like. Only a couple hundred years old. It wasn't this all started in the 1800s. So, just just a quick history lesson, and I'll let you go. This is not in your notes. I can provide this for you. Um, who were the first? Who were the earliest premillennialists? Papius, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, uh, Lactinus, I can't say that word anyway. Um, and many others. Um, for the first 300 years of the church, most of the church fathers were premillennial. Did you know that? What about pre-tribulationalists? Many of the early church fathers taught the imminency of Christ's return for believers, though they were vague about the details, meaning they they taught that Christ could return any time, but they weren't sure about like the tribulation, millennial. So just listen, uh, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, the Didache, an early document of the church, the Epistle of Barnabas, not not a canonical letter, but uh, an accurate letter, the Shepherd of Hermas, Again, these are like second and third century documents that talked about the eminency of Christ's return. Interestingly, the Shepherd of Hermas um, speaks clearly of a pre-tribulational rapture. And then later on in the Middle Ages, so what happens is after the the, the first you know, two, three, uh, two, three hundred uh, centuries of the church, we move into uh, medieval times and Catholicism and moving away from sola scriptura and whatnot. So, the, the Middle Ages are typically a dark age of theology, and not, that's not just eschatology, but that's true across the board. And then what happens in the Reformation? We, we, we rediscover scripture, we, we sola scriptura, we come back to the Bible, people are starting to rediscover doctrines. So then, um, in the Middle Ages, there's this brother Dulcino, and in the Reformation, uh, Doddridge, John Gill, James McKnight, Thomas Scott. Interesting, Thomas Scott was one of the preachers that took over for John Newton. in in the town of Olney, actually led him to the Lord. Um, And then Morgan Edwards held to a pre-tribulational rapture. So these are all guys that were pre-trib in the Reformation and post-Reformation. Interestingly enough, this Morgan Edwards, he had a, a, a pretty developed system of eschatology and what we would call a dispensational system. And he was several hundred years before Darby. And people, people typically think of, of Darby as the guy who sort of invented dispensational theology. That's not true. Um, premillennialists, pretribulationists have been around since the 2nd and 3rd century. And then early dispensationalists, and by that these are just people that believe in, in a more normative hermeneutic. They believe in the church is different from Israel. And that the covenant promises given the Old Testament are going to be literally fulfilled. So people that believe those things, people like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian... Later, post-Reformationists, I didn't know this, Isaac Watts, the guy that wrote Joy to the World, uh, he was an early influence to John Newton, wrote the first hymn book for children. Um, he leaned toward a, a dispensational system, uh, Divine Economy, 1687, even Jonathan Edwards' History of the Work of Redemption put forth dispensational systems. So, so anyway, so, so again, I kind of joke with my friends, oh, you know, you dispensationals, you invented this 200 years ago. It's actually, no, actually premillennialism was the earliest view of the church. And pre-tribulationalism has always been around, although it hasn't been accurately represented. When we think about a system of covenant theology and a system of dispensational theology, both of them in terms of those systems are only a few hundred years old. But the elements of them go back even to the early church. So anyway, so that's just just a historical reference as you interact with people and and they might talk to you about that, um, that. The things that we're talking about and the things that our church believes is the most faithful way to understand the scriptures. These are not doctrines that are just a couple hundred years old. They've actually been around really since the church began. All right. Well, let me pray and I'll let you go. Uh, Father, we thank you um, that we have this blessed hope, uh, that we have a reminder of encouragement, that we can uh, bring hope and and joy, uh, that people that are grieving over the loss of loved ones in Christ And we thank you, Lord, that uh, while we know that we're secure in Christ, that we have an important mission uh, to carry this message to many, many people who even this day are saying peace and safety, uh, and, and they do not know that this day is coming. Lord, sober us in that. Help us to examine our hearts, to remove superficiality, to remove foolish pursuits, uh, even to re-examine how we're using our time and our priorities. Um, not that we can't enjoy many of your blessings, but we want to be Christians that are sober and alert and are about the Master's business, knowing that this day will come and uh, and many people uh, will experience sudden destruction. So, Lord, uh, uh, make us to be faithful in these things, even as we uh, look forward to the day with joy and hopefulness. Um, Sober us to share this message and to be alert and sober as we think about uh, the, the mission that you've given us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.